What are you doing? Buying time. Time for what? I don't know yet. <laughs> Kona. What? It's Kona. We're gonna get Fubar now. What the hell's Fubar? You'll see. Real badass cops. <laughs> you don't look so tough now, do you? Must mean you. On the streets, this pig and his cop friends broke my ribs, my leg, and my jaw. You broke that jaw? You deserved it. Why did you do that? Why? Yeah, why? I was having a bad day. Like now? Like now! <laughs> Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the 1990s, 1996 to be exact, and you can read all of my written work at my website. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link that goes to my other podcast that actually does cover films of the 1990s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond, and it also covers newer films that were influenced by those movies of the 90s. Either there were sequels to them or reboots or remakes, and you can find that link, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series looking at films of the 1980s in which cops get framed for murder. The last episode we looked at The Running Man. This time it's much more set in the modern day. By modern day, I mean the late 1980s here. From 1989, it's Tango and Cash, one of the last films to be released in the 1980s. It came out in mid-December of 1989. Tango and Cash is an R-rated film. It does have a lot of violence in this film. There is some sensuality, brief nudity, and language as well. The runtime is an hour and 44 minutes. The main stars are Sylvester Stallone, as well as Kurt Russell, Jack Palance, Terry Hatcher, Brian James, James Hong, and Michael J. Pollard fill out some of the supporting roles. The director is credited to Andre Konchalovsky, the screenplay credited to Randy Feldman. Now, Tango and Cash stars Sylvester Stallone as Ray Tango. Tango happens to be a flashy, business-savvy LAPD narcotics officer. Meanwhile, by contrast, Kurt Russell plays Gabriel Cash, who happens to be a blue-collar, devil-may-care type who does score busts, big busts, with equal success. Headline grabbers. Drug kingpin Yves Perret, who's played by Jack Palance in this film, he wants these two huge impediments to their success as, as a drug lord, a drug cartel, out of the way. And he does that by setting in motion this plan to have Tango and Cash brought up on a bogus murder charge. And the cops, they do get sentenced. They accept a short stint in a minimum security prison, kind of as part of the deal, but they get railroaded in the process, thanks to Perret's influence, into a very seedy penitentiary, and their lives are in danger at every turn, primarily because a lot of the inmates that are there are really happy that they're there because Tango and Cash, one or the other, put them into the pen. So Tango and Cash have no choice but to join forces, try to escape, clear their names, and take down Perret in the process. Now, the origin of Tango and Cash really started in the mind of film producer John Peters, who, with assistance from his production partner Peter Goober, came up with this very basic action comedy story idea 
of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid if it were set in the modern day, and that pairing happened to be cops instead of crooks. And the cops would be very much like Butch and Sundance, an odd couple. In his mind, one would be a very high-class type from a high-class you know, working environment, kind of like that Beverly Hills cop that Stallone decided not to play at one time. And the other was going to be much more of an impetuous slob, and each saw themselves as the best cop in town, but they had jealousy toward the other, the rival across town, for being able to grab a lot of the media headlines that they wanted for themselves. And then they end up having to find themselves joining forces to take down, as I mentioned, that powerful drug cartel. All the while, they're bantering through a lot of the comedic hijinks. The screenplay duties for Tango and Cash, which wasn't called that at the time, it actually was called The Setup initially, it fell to Hell Knight screenwriter Randy Feldman. Actually, it, it changed from The Setup very quickly to just Setup. And Sylvester Stallone was set to be the star as this yuppie cop Ray Tango. For the blue-collar rival across town, Gabriel Cash, they decided that why not go with Stallone's real rival in, in Hollywood, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Schwarzenegger, though, declined. He was not interested. There was a lot of animosity between Stallone and Schwarzenegger for many years, both professionally and personally. He knew that it was going to be a very uneasy alliance, and the film was not going to boost Arnold's career in the same way that it would Stallone, who was struggling at the time with his career, so Arnold really didn't see the need to help Sly out at this point, although he did appear with Stallone later on when, they, when both of their careers needed a spark in the ensemble piece, The Expendables, as well as together as the main stars in Escape Plan. Well, Stallone was really reeling from his decision to abandon Beverly Hills Cop after he had revised the more comedic script into a grim and gritty action vehicle that he felt that his fans were more likely to want to see. And after Beverly Hills Cop proved to be a huge smash hit, one of the biggest hits of the 1980s, as well as other really snarky actioners that had a lot of comedy like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, Stallone realized that he really needed to change with the times because his films were less in demand. And his rival in films, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was taking chances like he appeared in a, a pure comedy in 1988 called Twins, and that happened to be a big hit because it not only brought out Schwarzenegger's fans, but it also gained him a lot of new ones. And Stallone felt that he needed to take a similar turn and kind of break out of that mold and do different kinds of films if he wanted his uh, career to stay vital. Studios, though, were really not ready to accept Stallone outside of action vehicles just yet. And in fact, they rejected two of his own script ideas to do biographies, biopics of Edgar Allan Poe, as well as Puccini. But he felt if he could kind of do it in a, a more gradual sense, maybe the next one would be an action comedy, something he had not really done before. He felt that that would get him one step closer to being able to broaden his repertoire and start to break out of the, the mold that he felt he was getting boxed in by. And playing tango would allow Stallone to do something new instead of playing another monosyllabic loner Tango was an articulate sophisticate who went through life with a, a pretty nice sense of humor, and that was very much like the real Stallone's personality if you met him out on a day-to-day -day basis. Tango's wardrobe would also be modeled after Stallone's personal sense of style. He would sport Armani suits, he would wear his own designer prescription eyeglasses that uh, Stallone typically wore when he was not on a movie set. 
Tango also happens to be very intelligent and business savvy, just like Stallone, and achieved a lot of his success using his methodical mind. By contrast, the uh, the other character that was going to be in the film, Gabriel Cash, that would be the rock and roll type. Stallone described the character as Bruce Springsteen with a badge. And the producers cycled through a lot of A-list actors, and, they, and eventually they came down to Patrick Swayze, who signed on. Meanwhile, for the director, it went to Runaway Train's Andre Konchalovsky, he received a lot of critical acclaim for his films. He was selected as the director. This would be his first for a major studio. As the summer approached, though, the title was changed again. This time it became, ultimately, Tango and Cash. And the reason it changed from setup to Tango and Cash is because Stallone actually had been working on another film in 1989 that was about to be released sometime during the production, and that was called Lock Up. And Warner Brothers thought that another prison film featuring Stallone, just called Set Up, was going to be confusing to the public, so they went with Tango and Cash instead. A major setback did occur during that pre-production phase when Patrick Swayze decided to drop out of Tango and Cash to appear in Roadhouse, and that caused a month-long delay to the production so that they could find another actor. Stallone deflected publicly about the casting issues. He claimed that it really... The casting issues were because it wasn't easy to find somebody who would not be intimidated by playing opposite him. You, know, you could assume that he meant Patrick Swayze, but really that was Stallone digging again on Arnold Schwarzenegger. They landed Kurt Russell. Russell, he wasn't that keen on the story as it was, but they did meet his salary demands, and he felt that Tango and Cash as a Stallone vehicle was going to give him much needed exposure because Kurt Russell, like Stallone, was suffering from a string of box office disappointments that had very largely eroded studio perception of Russell as an A-list actor. And he thought that the role, even though he was required to play kind of a second banana to Stallone here, he was going to have to bare his bottom at one point and he had to dress like a woman at another point. Russell felt that this was going to be worth it because it probably was going to mean he wasn't going to have to continuously haggle about his $5 million asking price with the studios for a little while anyway. Now, there were a lot of different henchmen roles that they were trying to fill in this film. There were going to be a lot of very comedic henchmen uh, parts for either Tango and Cash or both together to occasionally tangle with. John Matuzak, he was a top choice. Unfortunately, John Matuzak died in June of 1989 due to heart failure as a result of accidental overdose of prescription meds. Seattle Seahawks linebacker Brian Bosworth, he was recently forced into retirement after two seasons due to injuries, and he was looking to break into acting. They thought he had the stuff to be an actor on the caliber of Stallone or Schwarzenegger. He was heavily pursued to play a henchman here. However, Bosworth's agent would not allow the Boz to sign. And that was because he felt it was not going to be good for Bosworth's first exposure in film as an actor. He should not be playing a bit role as a villain who would get beaten up by Stallone in his very first exposure to the public. Mike Tyson was also a consideration. Mike Tyson, though, was very busy. He was training for an upcoming fight. And he was also in the middle of this messy divorce with actress Robin Givens. So it really wasn't the right time for him to get involved with an acting performance. Konchalovsky did happen to hire somebody he really wanted to work with, Brian James. In fact, he wanted to work with him for many years. When Konchalovsky was with Canon Films, though, James's salary requirements were a little bit too high for them to pay for. But here, with Warner Brothers, he could afford it. And after Brian James was hired, he, he really thought he could add more comedic flair to the role. Instead of just being this run-of-the-mill hitman from Cleveland, 
that maybe he should play his role as Requin with a Cockney accent. So he he rehearsed with Russell and Stallone during his first scheduled scene, and they felt that it was funny and it worked great. Even though, you know, the accent is not very good, but they felt comedically it would work. And because they were having a hard time filling these henchman roles and with Stallone helping with the daily script revisions, Brian James's role got expanded. He was initially supposed to be in two very small scenes, he appeared as a, as a recurring henchman throughout the rest of the film. Now, for the role of Ray Tango's stripper sister, Kiki, who would end up being kind of a romantic interest of Gabriel Cash, which further fueled some of the comedy in the rivalry, Konchalovsky envisioned that uh, Kiki should be like a Shirley MacLaine type, and that was because Konchalovsky, he had once been romantically involved just a few years before with actress Shirley MacLaine, and he had a real fondness for her, and he thought that that was a great personality that they could bring into the film, even though MacLaine was a little too old to play the part. They wanted kind of a younger version of that. But John Peters, though, was dating Kim Basinger at the time, and he thought they should definitely push for a blue-eyed blonde to be in this film. And meanwhile, the casting director had ideas of his own, casting director being Glenn Daniels. He thought that whoever plays Kiki had to be believable as Stallone's sister. And the part eventually came down to three actresses. There would be Karen Young, who was an actress that most resembled Shirley MacLaine, or at least that personality type. Daphne Ashbrook, who was a blue-eyed blonde. And then Terry Hatcher, who came in with all of the skills, the acting skills and the dancing skills to play the role. But she also had darker features. So she was the odds-on favorite for the role. But John Peters refused to hire Terry Hatcher and forced them to go with that blue-eyed blonde Ashbrook. Ashbrook was not required to be on the set until several weeks into the shoot. Her part was small at the time. Sometime during mid-production, she did come in, and on her first day of acting, it became very apparent very quickly that she was all wrong for the part, and so they scrambled to try to get Terry Hatcher. Hatcher happened to be about to leave for Mozambique for work, but this was her first big break in films. She decided to cancel those plans and was on the set the following day. Now, Kurt Russell knew that one of the things that he had to do was to get into good shape. There were a lot of physical demands for the part, but also he had to be working opposite the very fit Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone would tease Kurt Russell, who he felt was very lazy oftentimes, for skipping his workout. On those days, Stallone would toss Twinkies into Russell's trailer and call him a marshmallow and say he needed to hit the gym. The actors pledged to do a lot of their own stunt work. That happened to get scaled back, at least for Russell, because he tore his hamstring on the first day when he was performing several takes trying to chase down a perp down the street. It took a while for the hamstring to heal, but then he tore it again when he was doing something similar physical down the road. So he didn't get to do a lot of his own stunts, at least as he wanted to. As far as the prison scenes, Kontolovsky wanted the prison to look very old and funky. And so they secured this 119-year-old old workhouse in Camp Washington in the Cincinnati area for this location shoot because it looked really, really grungy the way that Konchalovsky wanted. But it also happened to be kind of ideal because there were a number of available nearby hotels that could house all of the cast and all of the crew, and they could get in and out of the location quickly. They would also recruit about three or 400 locals to use as extras in the jail. And in exchange for the jail's use, the studio just decided to donate either equipment or money to the city of Cincinnati, as well as the sheriff's department there. And additional footage was shot at the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. 
Tango and Cash, though, was not smooth sailing. In addition to the casting problems, they had problems with the production pretty much all the way through and, and really exacerbated because of a lot of the clashing egos here. Everybody felt that the, they were the top dog. There really wasn't a finished script as they started to film or really any time throughout the film. Scenes were constantly in the state of being altered or added or subtracted daily. And that caused a lot of issues with scheduling because they didn't know what locations they were supposed to be at or which actors were needed for each day's shoot. So it was always a scramble. Konchalovsky quickly fell behind schedule and over budget. The budget was initially intended as $35 million. It came out about $20 million over that in the end. A prominent but anonymous crew member told the press at the time about Tango and Cash's production problems. He called it the worst organized and most poorly prepared film that he'd ever worked on with nobody seeming to know what was supposed to be done from day one. Now, Jeffrey Bohm was the uh, screenwriter that they brought in to try to do a major rewrite and get this thing on track. Bohm called his experience with the film a long, incredible, and awful attempt. He didn't even lobby for getting screenwriting credit because he felt that he spent a lot of time rewriting the film, but he didn't really change the film in any meaningful way conceptually, and they really did not adhere almost at all to any of the major changes that he did make. Stallone himself became the person that took over a lot of the scripting chores on a day-to-day scene. He really kind of was a a band-aid here. But he wasn't alone. Many of the actors got involved with changing the nature of their scenes and their dialogue to their liking. So it was really a a group effort. A lot of ad-libs and improvisation on the spot. As far as cinematographer goes, Don Peterman, he was the initial cinematographer attached. But he left two weeks prior to the production starting. He cited a family emergency Barry Sonnenfeld was brought in as the new DP. Barry Sonnenfeld, of course, went on to become a successful director on his own. Sonnenfeld came in on one day's notice. He had to cancel his vacation plans. He did later learn that Don Peterman, because Don Peterman was the director of photography for Sonnenfeld's directorial efforts like Adam's Family Values and Get Shorty and Men in Black, that this family emergency that he cited was actually a cover for his real reason, which was that he wanted to desert what was obviously to him a sinking radioactive ship. Sonnenfeld himself knew exactly what uh, Peterman was talking about because he started getting perplexed by all of these conflicting decisions that were being made by Konchalovsky and Peters and Stallone. And Stallone in particular was really upset with the way that he was being filmed by Sonnenfeld. Stallone happened to be kind of on the shorter end of, of actors, of leading men. And he also had a partial paralysis of the lower part of the left part of his face. So he had very strict guidelines that he gave to cinematographers that they had to follow in terms of placing the camera low so that he appeared taller and also to try not to shoot the left side of his face as much as they can or to use lighting to try to obscure the paralyzed portion of his face. After nine days, Stallone felt that Sonnefeld was not paying attention to those guidelines. And so he was fired. Sonnenfeld was not really dismayed by this because he didn't really enjoy being there. He felt that it was a mess and he had a pay or play contract. It gave him all of the money that they were going to give him if he completed the rest of the shoot. Even though he got fired, he got to keep that money and he could enjoy the rest of his summer vacation with his family. And Stallone decided at that point to bring in Donald Thorin, who had just filmed Lockup with Stallone. He had all of the experience necessary with how Stallone wanted to be shot. And so he was Sonnenfeld's replacement for the rest of the shoot. 
Now, Russell says that dressing up as a woman in the film, one of the key gags in this movie, that was the only time in his entire career where he did not feel like he knew exactly what he was doing as an actor. He thought he looked just ugly, like an ugly version of his mother, and he didn't really understand the appeal of cross-dressing, not only for why anybody would want to do it, but why anybody thought it was funny to see him in a dress. But for a scene where Tango and Cash are supposed to walk out of the showers and they show their backside... Russell was ready to go. He came in in a towel. He was going to bare his bottom. Stallone chickened out. He sent a body double. And Russell was kind of like, no way. If he has to bear his butt, Stallone surely has to do it. And finally convinced Sly because he pointed out that the double, his butt double, had a hairy butt. And Stallone surely would not want to put that out there as resembling his own. So Stallone supposedly acquiesced, although there are a lot of rumors that he didn't come through with it. Konchalovsky says that he knew himself that he was likely going to get fired. Early on, he was asked by, presumably John Peters, why he was not moving his camera as he shot film. And Konchalovsky felt that he was the director. He should be the one calling the shots as to where the camera should go. And he felt that the camera should only really move when he wanted it to move. But this producer, Peters probably, told him he wanted to see the camera moving with every shot. And from then on, he had this constant battle with Peters on just about everything. And the underlying reason as to why they weren't really getting along is because they wanted to make two different kinds of movies. Konchalovsky wanted to make a very formula buddy cop actioner, an action film that had funny characters. But Peters wanted the entire film to veer much more into a full-on comedy Every aspect was supposed to be played for laughs, and that's why a lot of Jack Palance and these henchman roles were very comedic in their tone. Peter's ideas grew increasingly weird and insane in the mind of Konchalovsky. He did not understand why he wanted to put in all of the things he wanted to put in. And the biggest dispute between them, though, and the reason why Konchalovsky was eventually let go, was because they had a huge disagreement about the film's ending they eventually hit an impasse. And by this point, the studio was putting such a demand on the accelerated pace to make a December release. They knew that there were going to be major compromises that needed to be made in the ever-changing script. They didn't need all of this conflict. And so Konchalovsky's premonition did come true as far as getting fired. With just a couple of weeks left in the shoot, Konchalovsky got the axe. Stallone, you know, he was not responsible for the firing. He felt, in fact, he told the media that he loved working with Konchalovsky and he was really a wonderful man. He regretted seeing him fired. He knew he was going to be the one to take the blame for it because he always got blamed when people were let go of films, often rightly. But in this case, it wasn't him. Konchalovsky, he was falling significantly behind what was intended to be a 55-day shoot. Stallone did argue that the schedule was actually very unreasonable and that the shoot really should have been no less than 80 days. But Warner was determined to move at a breakneck speed. They wanted to ensure that the December release... And they felt that removing Konchalovsky was going to be necessary because of all of the conflicts, but they could also get some of the people involved to direct different scenes simultaneously. So at two or three times the speed, they could be shooting film. According to Konchalovsky, Stallone really was not the reason for him being fired. In fact, he called Stallone the sole presence on the set that kept everything together because Stallone happened to be taking on bigger and bigger roles as the days went on. He helped with the production. He helped behind the scenes. He helped with the writing. He helped with the direction. He was the main mediator between all of these parties that were no longer speaking to each other. In hindsight, Konchalovsky did feel quite happy to have been fired from Tango and Cash. It was the impetus for him to finally leave Hollywood with that guaranteed salary. And he went to France and he made movies his way again. 
But now they were without a director. So Stallone, along with producer Peter McDonald, who was handling second unit directing, McDonald happened to direct Sly in Rambo 3. They decided to handle the directorial DDs themselves. But the DGA, the Directors Guild, they would not allow these two to continue. They had to secure the services of another DGA-credited director. So they brought in Albert Magnoli. Magnoli happened to have had a working relationship with Donald Thorin already. They made Purple Rain together. Reportedly, Stallone and McDonald continued working on a lot of the first unit shoot, while Magnoli primarily did the second unit work. They all worked together to complete the film in a hurry. Magnoli's involvement really wasn't substantial enough for him to get the director's credit, so only Kontolovsky received the director's credit, even though so many changes after he left took place, a lot of reshoots and changes of the entire tone of the film. Magnoli did get paid over $700,000 for three weeks of shooting, so that was a good gig for him. But even the producers had their share of problems in this production. They vacated their roles as the film's executive producers just mere days before the completion of the shoot because Sony asked Goober and Peters to co-chair their newly acquired, Sony's newly acquired Columbia Pictures. Warner, though, decided to hit them with the lawsuit. They wanted to hold them to this five-year contract that Goober and Peters had signed in May of 1989, and in that contract, if they left, it still said that they would honor whatever productions that they had through the end of their contract. But Goober and Peters says that Warner voided this contract by replacing them before the contract's expiration. So, and the biggest reason why they weren't going to be there to complete it was because after the May production start was delayed, Goober and Peters wanted to make Tango and Cash to be released early in 1990. Warner, though, insisted that it should be released in December of 1989. And the main reason they wanted to do that was because they wanted to stay the top grossing studio of 1989 and have that kind of clout in the business. So over the vehement objections by Peters and Goober, they thought it was inconceivable that the film was going to be finished by then. Warner decided to press forward, removing all of the obstacles and getting it done. And this pressure campaign Warner put on the entire production accelerated greatly the remainder of the shoot. They started cutting out or drastically altering all of the slated scenes. They did a lot of reshoots concurrently at the same time. The whole opening sequence was done over two weeks to fix the pacing, the story issues. They wanted a big opening. The original opening just featured news reports covering Tango's bust in a warehouse where assault weapons were illegally stored and Cash's bust of an Ill illegal drug manufacturing plant followed by these crime lords discussing how these two cops have cost them and the decision that they were going to take them out. The newly shot scene has Ray Tango taking down this tanker truck full of cocaine in the standoff that rips off a similar scene in the Jackie Chan flick police story. Another film that features a cop getting framed for murder. They employed a host of different editors, especially Stuart Baird. Baird was dubbed Mr. Fix-It by Warner Brothers execs because of the, the work he did cutting Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. He was brought in to give a similar vibe to Tango and Cash and also work with other editors all around the clock that came in to assist and made this final push to get things finally completely edited. And out in theaters, these wet prints, I mean, it was, you know, the entire film was not even completed until like mere days before it was supposed to be in theaters showing to the public. Harold Faltemeyer was hired for the score, but Faltemeyer, who had been scoring throughout, he had permanently left for his native Germany when they started doing all of those reshoots to be with his family. He was unavailable to rescore for the newly edited or newly shot footage, so they brought in Gary Chang for about a week to patch things up. And despite all of the tumultuous activity, <laughs> believe it or not, Sylvester Stallone called Tango and Cash the most fun he'd ever had 
working on a movie. He was very sad when it was all over because he felt that they had a lot of fun joking around, especially off camera. He said that working with Konchalovsky, even though he got fired, and Russell, it really upped his performance as an actor. He compared it to the same way that working with John Huston and Michael Caine upped his performance in the 1981 sports drama Victory, but he felt that sharing the spotlight in front of and behind the camera actually made him a better actor and filmmaker, and he was going to stick with uh, doing it periodically. By contrast, though, Jack Plants called Tango and Cash the worst experience he'd ever had working on a film, and he singled out Sylvester Stallone in particular as the main source of the issues that he had. He felt Stallone was very arrogant. He had this very immense ego, and he really didn't like him. And the script, which originally were going to have three scenes in which Palance and Stone go toe-to-toe, those were cut. They never ended up working together, and the new scenes were put in with Palance doing really goofy things just for comedy, like with butterflies and monkeys and rats, and he didn't understand why he was doing them at all. Tango and Cash, despite all of these problems, it did debut at number two at the U.S. box office for its Christmas weekend release. It hovered in the top five for about two months, earning about $63 million total in its domestic U.S. release. That really wasn't what Warner Brothers had hoped for. They thought they should get a little more money than that, but it ended up being a huge hit still internationally. It made a lot of money overseas, even though some of that humor doesn't really translate well into non-English releases. Now, Tango and Cash, it was also pushed by Warner as a possible Oscar contender to try to grab maybe some nominations in the technical categories, maybe for sound design, etc. But the only nominations that it did receive came via the Golden Raspberry Awards, aka the Razzies. The Razzies bestowed three nods, three nominations for Tango and Cash. Worst actor for Sylvester Stallone, worst screenplay for Randy Feldman, even though... The screenplay was not adhered to hardly at all, so he's kind of taking the blame for something he really didn't do. And worst supporting actress, not for Terry Hatcher, but for Kurt Russell, because he appears in drag in the film. Stallone did lose out that uh, worst actor to William Shatner for Star Trek V, but he did scoop up a bigger award that year. He was named the worst actor of the decade of the 1980s by the Razzies for all of his bad movies, I assume over the years. Now, Tango and Cash, it's a typical 1980s buddy cop comedy. If you like buddy movies, you probably like it more. If those are not your bag, you probably won't like it at all. But most of the fun really comes through the repartee between the rival leads. They really don't do much more than heckle each other while making fun of each other, making fun of the bad guys. It's all very much making fun of itself as uh, an action movie. Explosions erupt, bullets fly. It's not really in keeping with 48 Hours or Lethal Weapon because those films had serious moments that kind of anchored them. This is definitely playing all for fun. High octane, low brain cell. It's a diversion. You might find it a guilty pleasure. In many respects, there are people that really enjoy Tango and Cash. It's really a fantasy land movie. Cops are super cops. They habitually find their antics are splashed across headlines in the city's most prominent newspapers. Each bust is as important as winning a Super Bowl in town. I mean, it really doesn't make sense from a realistic standpoint. They never really have any paperwork to do when it's all over. I think Tango and Cash, even though critically it was not, it was maligned at the time, it's kind of ahead of its time as a subgenre of action movies that have metatextual humor. And that's why a lot of people today respond to Tango and Cash in a way 
that maybe people in the late 1980s did not respond to who viewed it as a, just a really bad action film. You know, these kinds of films that are just for fun, you're not supposed to take them seriously at all, are much more commonplace today. And that's why people view Tango and Cash in hindsight as a fun film for its era. For instance, Sylvester Stallone, he provides a lot of winks and nods in the dialogue. He has Tango refer to Rambo as a pussy at one point in the film. He also proclaims to hate Danish. In this case, Danish is the dessert, but in the way that he says he hates Danish instead of Danishes, that really refers to his recent bitter divorce from philandering and reckless Danish model actress Bridget Nielsen. Uh, Stallone also digs at Schwarzenegger. He gets violent with Robert Zadar, who plays this henchman nicknamed Face, which is, if you see the film, it's the man with a huge chin. He states, when he sees him, I loved you in Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Zadar happened to have kind of a passing resemblance, Stallone felt, to Schwarzenegger, and Stallone admitted in interviews that he imagined Zadar was Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was delivering the violence upon him. A lot of silly hijinks result here in what is very lowbrow fare, you know, rustle and drag, gay prison jokes, on the like. I don't think anything really works in this film except for the repartee. You know, Palance, he makes for a formidable bad guy in terms of his presence here and the way that he acts, but he's not nearly given the quality of lines that you see the protagonists get. Terry Hatcher is memorable as eye candy. Uh, Tango's younger sister, Catherine A.K. Kiki, who happens to be a stripper. I mean, that's just something John Peters probably threw in there. Konchalowski and Magnoli and Stallone and whoever, you know, ended up directing from scene to scene. They deliver the action with a wallop, but the plot here is so generic, it doesn't really elicit true thrills in terms of the action and the plot. It's really propelled by the personalities that are in front of the camera, the wisecracks, the star power. There's a lot of brutality here, not a lot else going for it. That may be enough still for some viewers, especially diehards of the two leads. You know, both of these leads are really, in my opinion, the best part of what is otherwise a vacuous attempt at an action flick. For many years, it was considered like just a really bad movie. Even Stallone himself said that when his kids misbehave, he threatens them by saying he's going to make them sit through watching either Tango and Cash or Stop or My Mom Will Shoot if they don't shape up. Usually they shape up after that. Kurt Russell, at some point after making the film, he called it the biggest piece of excrement. Actually, he used a harsher word there that he had ever done. Although he did change that worst film that he had ever made later when he made 3,000 Miles to Graceland. That became the worst piece of whatever he'd ever done. Konchalowski subsequently refers to Tango and Cash as a movie for people who can't read. And he's very surprised to learn that there are actually people that actually do respond favorably to it because, because he doesn't see very much merit in the film. So the people who made this film kind of disowned it for a while, but because, as with so many movies from the 80s or 90s, given enough time, people do respond favorably to it, and eventually it does find its audience. And in fact, I guess people have come around, Stallone at least, came around to Tango and Cash, because in 2019, Stallone revealed that he was interested in doing a follow-up, a sequel to Tango and Cash, and he was trying to get Russell involved, but Russell had been on the fence about it because he feels that they're past their prime and they should leave it alone. He said that maybe if Sylvester Stallone had a son who wanted to appear in a Tango and Cash remake, Stallone's son would have been able to appear with Russell's son, Wyatt Russell. That might be a better idea, but obviously Stallone's son, Sage, died in 2012, so he was not going to be involved. Sergio uh, Stallone, 
has had lifelong struggles with autism, so not really an option there. Anyway, Tango and Cash, I give two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars in my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to be something more than what it was. But I think what happened here, you had a good director, Konchalovsky. You had appealing stars. To me, Stallone and Russell are very good together. I really enjoy watching them together. I think it's funny when they are trying to be funny. But the movie is so overblown. It has really stupid ideas. It's really messy and, and noisy. And, you know, when it's not tangling cash on the screen, bantering, I don't find it nearly as appealing as that. So I feel like it's a very uneven film. And I think objectively, it's a bad film that has fun parts. That might be enough for some people, but it's not something I could wholeheartedly recommend to most people. So it's really for action comedy lovers of the 80s primarily. So two and a half stars out of four is the best I can give Tango and Cash. If you want to say why you feel actually this is a good movie, it's definitely deserving more than two and a half. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, and my Instagram are also there. I do recommend email if you do want to get in touch with me and say anything more than just a few words, though. As far as what I'm going to be doing on the next episode, where we're going to kick off kind of a longer series, a four-part series, looking at a film series that features Sylvester Stallone. Not the Rambo films, but it actually started in the 1970s. But uh, I'm only going to cover Rocky Rocky IV. I will save Rocky V for my other podcasts for the films of the 90s and beyond and get into those other Rocky films at some point down the road. So Rocky from 1976, Academy Award winner, Best Picture. Looking forward to that. Haven't seen it in a while, so check that out if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while for the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we continue to travel around the world in 80s movies. Oh,